Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP. As you may have attended last Friday on May 14th was our big name reveal. And um, we have switched to the name SHIP. You can find us at weknowship.org. Uh, we're very excited about this change and everything that comes with it. So I hope you can go to our website and learn a little bit more. So let's get started with the actual show. Today we have with us Chelsea Federley. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Viva. It's good to be here. So let's start with um, introducing yourself and what do you do and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, my name is Chelsea. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I guess what's really important for, for me to share with you all Um you know, in this space uh, is my role at Wheaton College. So that's my full-time job. I, the sexual um, violence prevention and education coordinator. Uh, and so a lot of the work that I'm doing there is surrounded around consent um, and uh, reducing shame, um, you know, and pr- creating a positive culture around sexuality on, on the campus. Um, I, my personal pedagogy is helping others to help themselves. And in doing that, right, my, my goal is to just give people the resources um, to make the best decisions for themselves. Um, and so some other ways that I do that um, is through uh, my work with, with SHIP as, a, as an educator, um, doing a lot of work with uh, medical care providers and pre- professional development, and also doing sex education at other um, colleges and universities. Um, and yeah, that's me. Awesome. Um, thank you. That That is a lot of work. And you've done a couple of um, workshops or webinars for CHIP, formerly known as the CSBH. Um, I know the, the last one was a couple of weeks ago. And that was that it was really good. Um, so what do you do to work in sexual violence prevention in colleges or universities? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that my interest in working with colleges and universities started when I was a college student myself. Um, So I went to Roger Williams University um, for my undergraduate degree. So I've I've been in Rhode Island ever since. Um, And I um, was a peer health educator in that role. Um, And so as a peer health educator, I was like the one person that came to that interview and was like talking about sex. (laughs) Um, And everyone else was talking about all these other pieces of wellness that are super important, like nutrition and stress management and sleep and physical activity and drug and alcohol use. And I was like talking about sex. And so I kind of was quickly became the the sex person, um, if you will, um, in that role. Uh, And so a lot of that was a lot of like harm reduction, similar to a lot of the models that we see, um, you know, in in high schools and things like this, where we, um, you know, are just are just focusing on like STIs and pregnancy and stuff like that. So there was a lot of that. Um, and it was certainly very focused on that. But kind of through that, I was able to to push forward also a little bit of pleasure education and, and the recognition that the reasons people are having sex, typically in college, right, um, is to is for pleasure or is to um, build relationships or what have you. Uh, and so in doing that work, I saw the power of education to create real change. Um, it was really incredible. Like some of the campaigns and stuff we did, I would see people actually using some of that language that we were trying to get people to use. This was also during the time um, of the It's On Us campaign under the Obama administration. Um, and so there was a lot of like more talk of consent Um than we had previously had, like that kind of started to happen while I was a college student. Um, and so there was a lot of a lot of growth and change happening. And I could literally see it because it was my peers that I was teaching. So I was interacting with them and getting to see that change and was like, just thought, wow, how powerful is this? Like education, this really, you know, allows people to, to get knowledge and that creates change. Um, and but I was kind of stumped because I was like, okay, I know how to do this here, but 
professionally? I don't know. Like, what does this look like? Is What kind of job is this, right? Right. Uh, and so I, I graduated and, and started working um, at that time, known as the CSPH, now SHIP, um, you know, as an intern uh, and started to really learn more about sexual pleasure and, and also a lot more about like diversity and inclusion and being really inclusive on, with sex education. Um, and that's, they were, you know, in my role, I was working also closely with colleges and my whole college experience and, and that experience of that internship really, really allowed me the experiences to be able to do this work. And I've always been so grateful. And I wanted to be able to give that back to a community of college students, um, to a community, a university community. Um, I, I've always loved working with that age group, um, with the kind of, you know, young adults, you know, still kind of adolescents, right? They're still really absorbing and learning so much and changing. Um, and so I really wanted to work with that group because also because I saw so many barriers in getting into, to high schools and to, um, you know, uh, middle schools and, and the younger you get, the harder it is to get into schools. Right. And so, right. I said, okay, well, if I can't get in there, all these, a lot of these students are going to come to colleges, right? And so maybe that's the place. They're adults. So there's less red tape telling me what I can and can't say. So this is the place, right, where I can do this education. Um, and so I try and even the playing field. I try and, um, and, and by that, I mean, trying to give people a really basic understanding of sex education. And that's how, in my opinion, and I mean, not just my opinion, like, there is obviously research to support this. That is how we prevent sexual violence is by giving people the tools to have the sex they want to communicate with sexual partners um, and things like this. Also, you know, on the other side of that, I recognize that that age group, this like 18 to 24, or I think it's actually 16 to 24, is where we see the most sexual violence happening. Um, and I said, yeah. okay, well, if I'm going to prevent this, I, I need to look where it's happening the most. Um, and I want to prevent it there. And so, you know, on a college campus was where I saw the need um, to be preventing that. And I also saw the passion of students who wanted to be involved with this as well. And I, I knew from my own experience, the power of having that peer education. Mm. So it was kind of the, the, what drew me, I guess, to summarize was two pieces, the, the wanting to be able to mentor and, and work with college students the way that I had that experience as a young person. And also seeing that this is an issue on college campuses, a huge issue. And I, you know, I'm a survivor of sexual violence um, and I have too many friends that also identify as survivors who were not able to get connected to the support they needed as a college student. Um, you know, and sometimes it does, it takes years and years for somebody to get connected to the right resources. And I, I want to prioritize that. And, and that's a goal of my work as well. Yeah, that, that is huge. And in, Educa sex education in college campuses it's a it's a great place in terms of like you said targeting the right audience at the right time where these on their late stage of their teenage years are not under a household they're on their own for the first time and they're learning how to navigate the world without having the tools available to them when they were in high school and middle school because of the red tape like you mentioned that just reminds me of the type of sex education I had when I was in college, which was, it should not be labeled sex education at all. Uh, what we had, and I remember, remember it to this day because I was both appalled and left me with more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, an older gentleman, maybe in his, his 60s, go through statistics, but in a way that were negative. Mm -hmm. Like some of the things that he mentioned is by year two of your college education, 90% of you will not be virgins anymore, but said it with like a negative connotation. And then he proceeded to have a, a PowerPoint slide of STIs, and the worst look, like the picture, the, the shock value pictures of like, this is what chlamydia looks like, or and this is what gonorrhea looks like. And if you have sex, this is how it's going to look like for you. And that was pretty much it. There was no talk of consent. There was no talk of pleasure. Definitely not. Um, there was no talk of condoms or any other 
safer sets or barriers to use on a sets aware um on a safer sets kind of event that doesn't make sense <laughs> um so there was no no talk about what preventative measures you could do there was no talk about this is what you actually should look for in terms of like if you have any symptoms it was just worst case scenario and that was it and that was the end of sets education in college campuses for I was in college for six years and that was it that's all we had um yeah. And I mean, it's not surprising. So often I hear, I mean, I think fortunately like college sex education is getting a little bit better, but again, it's not mandatory, right? Like it's these optional programs that students can go to. And typically the students that probably need it the most are not seeking out those programs. Um, but so often like w- the reflections that people have on their sex education up until, you know, they get to college, I often ask them to reflect on their, their experiences. And so often that's what it is. It's, it's the, the scare tactics. It's, about pregnancy and it is about the all the scary images of STIs and STDs whereas like what they're not telling you is that so often there could be absolutely no symptoms at all and that's why it's really important to get tested right and so they're telling you about all these things that they don't want to happen to you right in the sense like they meaning the, the people of the power who are giving this education and yet they're giving you none of the tools to actually prevent any of that from happening right and those tools would include information about contraceptive and um you know information about barrier methods and and yeah how to have safer sex and recognizing like there's risk always going to be some risk associated there's a lot of ways that you can keep yourself safe and also in that in that you can also increase pleasure you know for example with the use of lube like that's one thing i did talk about mostly in our although mostly we're talking about safer sex we did talk about lube a lot as peer educators but like i didn't know anything really about it i just knew there was lube and then there was not using lube like nobody talk, talked about like the ingredients and like you know all of this um so yeah, there was such little pleasure conversation, but I think when you bring that piece in, that's when you get the students to listen. Oh yeah, too. because that's that's the part that is actually interesting. Looking at pictures of people that have reactions to different STIs is not interesting. It's a scare tactic that for that age group really doesn't work because 16 to 24 is when you feel the most invincible. So looking at pictures of people that have STIs and have had bad reactions to STIs, you will always think it's not going to happen to me because I'm invincible. And up to our late 20s, we feel invincible until our back starts hurting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the thing. People zone out. Like whenever they think, oh, this will never happen to me, they, they think they don't need to pay attention anymore. Right. And so. Right. Yeah, there needs to be a way to say, listen, this is important to you. You know, why do you want to have good sex? Listen up, you know, and that's, exactly. that's, what, I try and, that's what I try and do. That's, yeah, that, that's the, the best approach. So how does your education have changed um, during COVID? Because we've been a year and change into this and you, you don't have that face-to-face or maybe your college does. Yeah, absolutely. So I so I started working at Wheaton and I was only on campus for six months. <laughs> so I finally got my like dream job. I loved it. I love being on a college campus. Wheaton is a beautiful, beautiful campus. I love, you know, walking around, you see the students and you see, you know, your your colleagues and you know, it's just it's wonderful. Um and it was so great and it ended so abruptly. So at this point, I've been in this job virtually longer than I have been in person. Um, This field, sure, I've been in a long time. So I was able to kind of figure out how to adapt things um, and whatnot, but it it hasn't been easy um, by by any means. So so Wheaton has been in a kind of hybrid model, um, but I've been primarily working uh, remotely just because the stuff I do is typically with larger groups, right? Some of the mandatory trainings and things like this, and there was just no way that was going to happen um, in person. 
So hopeful, hopeful for the fall that we'll be able to be back in person and, and doing some of that in person. Um, I've, I've had to get really creative with with uh, poll everywhere and and my slideshows and and all this and that to try and engage students. And um, I think the hardest part for me has personally as an educator has been I feed so much off of other people and the energy in the room. So not having that has been difficult for me. Um, but I think, you know, in thinking about in a broader sense, what had, what was really difficult, especially early on, was engaging people because everyone's focus was on COVID-19 as, as it should have been. I mean, that's where my mind was at. Like everyone, nobody knew what was happening. It literally felt like the world was on fire. There was a couple times in the past year that the world literally was on fire, you know, like it's yep. just been a crazy year. Right. Um, and so in the beginning, you know, with that, that panic and, and we could only kind of focus on this. And I, I felt like I had to be like, hello, hello, everyone over here. Do we, re- can we remember for a minute that sexual violence is also a global pandemic. Right. Because it is, because if we look at the definition of what is a pandemic, right? Like sexual violence affects so many people around the world. Yeah. You know, in the, in the United States, one in three women, um, half of trans and non-binary folks and one in six men will experience sexual violence at some point in their lifetime. Right. And that's statistics for here. And I imagine that's somewhat probably reflected, um, you know, uh, around the world, um, if not worse in some areas, right? Right. So this is affecting a lot of people. And it's not putting them in a hospital maybe every time. It's not putting them in a hospital right away, but it has lasting consequences. We need to remember that while we are trying to be really, really careful around COVID-19 and be really protective and um, you know, do our social distancing and thinking about all these preventative measures. We need to think, not forget about all of our preventative measures around consent and around sexual violence and how we can prevent that, you know, consent being one of those pieces. Right. So I think this time now reflecting, right, the last workshop that I um, did with uh, ship was um, about COVID-19 and and having sex and relationships through a pandemic. And I think really what I've, you know, after doing that workshop and thinking about this a lot, I've really reflected on, you know, some of the ways that we we think about prevention around a, like a disease like COVID, right? Some of those tools I think can actually be really useful in thinking about how we prevent sexual violence. Right. Oh yeah, there there is there is some overlap and there there is some lessons learned that we can definitely translate. Um so moving on a little bit, uh I know you have a full-time role at, at Wheaton College, but you also work with closely with some um nearby universities and their medical programs. So how that's like. Yeah, absolutely. Um so my I think besides working with college students, my other passion um, is working with uh, medical care providers, healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, you know, all these different folks. Um, And so I do that in kind of two different ways, mainly if I had to like summarize it. Um, The first is as a gynecological teaching associate. Um, And so in that role, I am, I become the patient, right? I, I, I role play the patient. So in that role, I become the patient, I role play the patient um, and medical students typically in their second year rotation. And one of their rotations is to um, practice a pelvic exam. Uh, And so they, um, they do that on, on my body. So I first learned about this when I was an intern um, with the center for sexual pleasure and health. And um, you know, one of my, my mentors was talking about this and I thought, wow, that's so cool. Like I want to do that. Um, And it was at that time, I didn't realize like how intensive it is and how much of the role I'm playing as the teacher. Um, In some programs, you have a a fourth year medical student alongside of you and you're kind of co-teaching and they kind of, you know, are leading by example. And other programs, I'm just the main teacher and I'm there with the students, right? Mm. And what's really important about that work is that the students have an opportunity to talk 
with me. What they struggle with most, what they're most scared about, I think, is the technique. They're always scared they're going to hurt me with the speculum or something like this. But actually what they struggle with the most is the language and learning how to talk through this type of exam um, mm. with a patient, right? And how do you be trauma-informed and gender-inclusive and use consent? And so that's what I'm mostly there to help them with, right? They can practice putting a speculum into a, a fake model of a vulva, right? Like right. they can do that, but they don't have somebody that's talking back to them. And so that's the most important piece in, in that type of education. Um, and it's one of my favorite jobs. I, I think people sometimes are like, oh, like, doesn't that hurt when I'm like, yeah, I've had hundreds upon hundreds of pelvic exams at this point, right? And they're just like, oh God, I wouldn't, you know, I could never, and I'm like, okay. First of all, most important lesson, it shouldn't hurt. If your pelvic exams are painful, right? Your internal pelvic exams, you should be telling your provider that. And your provider also should be like figuring that out and probably noticing that that is happening. Right. Um, so I, it doesn't hurt. I love this work. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more later about, you know, um, why I love this work. But I want to talk about the other piece, which is that doing just education, more of a model of um standardized education, if you will, uh, you know, where I'm talking about just, you know, body parts and inclusive of being inclusive of pleasure and being inclusive of gender and gendered language, um, you know, and uh, how to uh, engage patients in having these kind of conversations with their provider um, and really just giving the resources to providers so that they can answer questions that they may get from their um, patients or clients or whomever, depending on the relationship um, that they have. And so it's, it's, uh, I've worked with um, uh, groups of massage therapists, um, which is, which was a really cool, I mean, it's so engaging of the body and our bodies hold so much trauma. So how important to have some background around like gender and sexual violence and, and things like this. Um, I've worked with uh, medical students. I've worked with, um, like psychiatric uh, uh, healthcare providers, uh, worked with um, medical students who are in the pediatrics field. And how do we have these conversations with kids? Because we can, I know like nobody wants to say it, but we can start having conversations with kids about sex. Um, and there's an age appropriate way to do that. And, and that's what I kind of help them to be able to do. Um, yeah. So those are, those. that's that's that work with the, with the medical care. Uh, that's, that is fascinating. I didn't know that um, I, in my mind, um, gynecologists just practice on a doll how to use the speculum and that was the end of their training. And that's sometimes, at least some of the doctors I've, I've visited feel like that's the only training they had. So I'm glad that you're doing that kind of work with the language and how to talk to patients because I've definitely had some like nightmare visits to gynos where I'm like I'm not going back and having someone having a gyno that is or any other technical professional when you go get a sonogram especially if it's a a vaginal sonogram it's quite invasive mm -hmm. and that was my first and I will say only experience where the technician was not only um about informed consent but also um, how do you say that um, trauma aware where she walked me through everything she was going to do and she gave me the option of do you want to use the wand yourself and I'll guide you through it because it is so invasive and it's so intimate um, and she gave me the option of like hey this is very difficult and for some for some folks it's very difficult to go through this test because of trauma so you have the option of you can move the wand yourself and I'll just tell you left right up and down and what I need to find out on on your internal organs and why you're getting the sonogram to begin with um but that was like my the best experience I've had with someone that is trauma informed and is consent forward experience in the medical field I, every other one has not been up to that level high level of care and I really appreciate that you're doing that teaching to them so they can be better yeah absolutely um and I'm I'm you know I think that's really common for folks to have both 
I mean, unfortunately, I think it's more common to have negative experiences with providers, but it's great to hear that there also have been more, I feel like I've been hearing more and more about positive experiences and that consent and the trauma-informed piece. But, um, you know, and I know you said like, oh, I thought they just practiced on, on models or like dolls or whatever. What's even more alarming, I think, is the fact that not only that, but sometimes when they don't go to a medical program that offers this rotation, this um, gynecological rotation, the first time they're ever giving a pelvic exam is on somebody who's unconscious. Um, so either they've, they've had some procedure um, previously, some surgical procedure, something like that, and they're still unconscious from the anesthesia, and a doctor will hand a medical student or, you know, somebody who's in their, their training phase in the hospital, a speculum and say, go ahead and do a pelvic exam. Wow. And that's it. And that's yes. it. Wow. <laughs> that's no, just heartbreaking. No consent. Like that person, right. can you imagine? And there's like, there the students, I've, I've, you know, listened to a couple of, of different, uh, actual podcasts about this and, and also read some articles where students like are severely uncomfortable with this. They like, can recognize there's something weird about it. And even worse than that is in some programs, the medical students are practicing on one another. I, I'm <laughs> trying to define which one is worse. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, and I think, right, it is hard to define which one is worse, but I think like putting medical, putting your peers to, in a place where you're in that like position, it just seems widely, I mean, both are just so unethical, right? And some states right. have started to actually make it um, illegal to practice uh, medical or I'm sorry, pelvic exams on people who are unconscious in hospitals and, and things like this, because it's done without consent or knowledge. So it's very possible. Like I had this realization, like, oh my gosh, this could have happened to me. And I wouldn't have known. I will right. never. I, I, yeah. I'm thinking the same thing that I, I've been in, in under anesthesia once. And now I'm wondering like, did they do that to me or not? And I will never know. We may never know. Yeah. We can only hope that there will continue to be legislation that won't allow this to happen and more advocacy around having these programs, right? And having um, gynecological teaching um, associates. Right. It's important work. Yeah. I mean, that's, I almost prefer that they have a doll over it, over it, those um, kinds of procedures. Yeah. Um, so have you had any feedback from the students, from the medical students on this program? I'm curious uh, yeah. to know what they what they think. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest thing um, that I think um, I hear from students is um, a sense of gratitude. They're so grateful. They're so grateful. It's like incredible to me, right? They they're they're so just like like appreciative of my time and my patients. And usually they come in and they're so nervous and they leave and they're like, Oh my God, I was so nervous. You're so nice. You made this so easy. And I'm like, listen, this is how it should be. Right. This is a learning space for you. I'm not grading you right. That medical school is obviously very intense. I've had people who have started crying in the middle of, of practicing these exams. And it's just because there's so much intensity and they, there's like this release when they finished the exam. And they also realize like, wow, I can do this. Right. You know, and, and they do a great job and I, I give them that, that feedback and whatnot, but yeah, there's a lot of um, gratitude. And I think for me, you know, in, in both sides, I think more so I get it in the, the GTA piece than in when I'm doing other types of education, but both times there's just so much gratitude. And I think like, that's what really keeps me invested and interested in, in doing this work. Um, because it, I mean, in that way, it's like literally rewarding. Like that appreciation is really, I think, for somebody in this field and maybe some fellow sex educators or other educators in the field who are, who are listening might be able to connect with this. Like you don't always get that like feedback, you know, sometimes you're just like, oh, I hope that was what they were expecting and what they wanted and you know sometimes you're not always getting that feedback and this is a setting where I always get it there's just so much gratitude and what I think that shows is that there's a need for it 
Right. That students aren't getting enough of this, you know, in or students or like new medical care providers or or whatever are not getting enough of this in their in their career or in their training. Um, and so they're so grateful to finally have gotten. And I think so often that gratitude is a little bit of it is coming from this recognition of maybe connecting it to their own experiences. And wishing they could have talked to their doctor about sex and sexuality and pleasure and consent or had a really bad experience with the pelvic exam, you know, and, and want that to not happen to other people. Because if it, that's happened to you, I mean, it sucks. Yeah. It's not, it's not fun. You may, you probably don't ever want to get another one. And that's, that's a problem, right? That's a really important piece of, of um, one's healthcare. And if there's something like that, that's going to get in the way of you not being able to access that, you know, trauma or fear, um, you know, of being misgendered or of, um, you know, being hurt or harmed or, or not respected in that space, you're not going to want to go back. Right. Um, I remember my, my first gyno visit was so traumatized, traumatizing that I didn't go back for seven years. And the, that is seven years that I went without care because I was terrified as a young 18-year-old on my first visit ever. And the way that the this doctor treated me was so bad that I'm like, I'm never, ever going back to this kind of doctor. And I didn't until I moved to Rhode Island. And I found another doctor that was okay. He wasn't the best. I since changed again um, and I'm very happy with my new gyno but my first experience was awful and it was a college provided doctor so my college had a, a clinic in in campus and they had a PCP and they had a gyno and a psychologist and a couple of other specialists and that was the gyno that all the students went to and she was awful. Yeah. And you hear so many stories about that, Fima, about the uh, like college um, gynos and and those, those experiences. And sometimes that's a person's first experience and and Mm -hmm. it's so often so terrible. And the amount of stories of like shame I've heard too, and the assumptions of the, you know, heteronormative assumptions that are often made in that space too. It's just horrific. The, the, the shame that can happen, forget like the invasiveness of that type of exam. Right. But like just even the conversation sometimes can be the most traumatic piece with the amount of shame that's being put onto a, a person in that space who's coming there to get healthcare. Like that's, that's, you know, they're there. Whatever, it might've t- been difficult for them to get there in the first place and to go. A lot of people have a lot of anxiety about medical care settings and things like this. And that only, re- a bad experience has only reinforced that. Oh yeah. The shame was definitely a big piece. Um, because like I, like I said, in, in my college, the, the sex education that we got was scare tactic type sex education so the the gyno finding out that I was sexually active and she went on a rampage on on shaming me for decisions that I made for myself so it was yeah it wasn't the best (laughs) at all um but going on talking more about uh medical students and and whatnot what is your advice for either recent graduates or people that have um, their practices to bring pleasure, consent in trauma-informed practices to their offices and and their work? Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm a little biased on this question and I'm going to say, reach out to SHIP, Um, reach out uh, to them and request a workshop um, because some of the best sex educators, in my humble opinion, are, are working with SHIP and, you know, um, and, th- and that's how you can kind of start getting connected to those resources. I think a lot of times people don't know where to start, but seeking out education, like, especially if you're local to, to Rhode Island, uh, you know, New England area, like this is a really wonderful research resource for you, but also like in this world with, with the, you know, um, becoming better at using our virtual tools, like 
it can be provided anywhere. Um, so, so reach out and, uh, you know, get this education. If you feel like you, it is lacking for you, it's likely was lacking for some of your colleagues or, you know, some of your peers as well. Um, and so, so get a, get a workshop. Um, that's a great place to start, but I think in the small ways, um, that people can do it on an individual level is to consider, um, consider what they may have wanted to ask their healthcare provider, whatever type of, so if they're working with kids, like when you were a kid, what did you want to ask your doctor? You know, if you're working um, with, as a psychiatrist, you know, what is questions you wish you could have talked about your psychiatrist in relation to your sexuality, right? If you've ever seen a psychiatrist or a therapist or whomever you are, think about those, those questions you wish you could have asked to that person and find the answers to those questions. And, or if you can't find the answers, at least create a space where that per where that patient can ask those questions, right? And so right. that means being, being open and, and bringing up the topic of sexuality and relationships and bringing it up with no assumptions, right? Something I teach about is called radical inclusion, right? And that means that we're making no assumptions about somebody when they walk in, right? The one thing I say sometimes to assume about people is that they have trauma because almost everyone does. So be trauma-informed all the time, right? That's the one assumption that's right. allowed, but you don't know what that trauma was. So, so just being trauma-informed, which means just being really careful about your language, when bodies are involved too, never touch anybody without asking, even if it is a medical care exam, right? Um, and and also in that language, noticing so often doctors will say, hey, can you like, you know, uh, bend over and touch your toes for me or something, you know, in a physical exam or something like this. That for me is not for you. It's not for the doctor. That's for me as the patient, Right. I'm doing right. this so you can make sure my spine is healthy or like whatever, you know, it might be. So, so being cautious of that language too, um, you know, I think is, is the small pieces that people can do on an individual level is just being really conscious of the assumptions you're making, the language you're using, um, and think about what might be insinuated by that language, um, you know, and, and yeah, and just, being able to talk about sex and sexuality and getting comfortable with that. So if a, a patient does come to you and says, Hey, I want to talk about, um, you know, I've been, I've been experiencing a lot of pelvic pain or, or what have you that your jaw isn't going to drop to the floor and you're going to look scared because you don't know the answer, you know, you have some resources, or if you don't know the answer, calmly say, you know what? I don't have a lot of resources on that. I'm going to confer with my colleague and get some more information, or I'm going to refer you to, X, Y, and Z person, or, you know, what have you, or this is a really great resource online that you can check out anything, anything's acceptable, rather than, ah, no, that's not really a problem. You don't need to worry about that, right? Right. In, in such a small way, even just saying, that's very normal, or that's really common. You know, when we're talking about pelvic pain, that's really common, but it's not normal. I want you to, you know, be able to enjoy sex. Let's, let's talk to, let's get you connected with somebody who can help you with that. Right. So simple, right? I'm not a doctor. I could say it. I mean, I, I'm comfortable talking about sex and sexuality, but right. I'm not, I'm not a medical professional, um, in that way, but I think just you getting comfortable with those, with that language, getting comfortable talking about genitals. I mean, so often I think we have this assumption that all doctors might be comfortable with that, but they might not be right. I told you the amount of doctors, you know, second year medical students, they're still, they're still fresh, but nonetheless, they come in and they're, they're uncomfortable with, with, my body on the table, you know, and, and with my vulva and, and often actually not even using the correct word for it and calling it my vagina. I'm like, no, no, we're looking at the whole thing. You're looking at the whole thing, the vulva. Right. And so right. like even simple stuff like that can be so reaffirming in a medical space. Yeah. And, and also understanding that depending on the cultural background of your patient, their language may change. Like if someone like me that has a Latinx background, we grew up with a lot of like hush and shame towards our own body. So we're used to using slang words for our body parts, but they're, in, and we don't use the medical terms and you may encounter that your patients are doing that. 
in either understanding that you may need to use the same language or navigate them towards the medical term and sense where the comfort level of your patient is, is very important. For mm -hmm. the longest time, the word vulva was very uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while. If I went to a doctor, I would say my bits because I wouldn't want to say vulva. And it was just through time that I became more open to that word. But having a doctor that understands, that's an uncomfortable level for me on the language. And she could navigate that and still help me. That was very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Another really important piece of that, like when I was talking about radical inclusion, which is something, a concept I teach to medical care providers, um, is mirroring language. And so I think what's really important when we're talking about parts um, is some folks might not be comfortable with the language and some people might not be comfortable with the language because they're not comfortable with the parts. For example, somebody who's perhaps in the midst of a transition um, and, uh, you know, is not is not feeling great about some of the parts that they have. Um, and so I think we can mirror language and, and a way that this can kind of happen. So for example, if you came in and said, oh, my bits, and as a provider, I was like, okay, I wanna make sure we're on the same page, right? So I'd say, so when you're saying your bits, are you referring to your, your vagina, your vulva, you know, whatever it might be um, and saying like, oh yeah, that's what I mean. Um, or saying like, yeah, that's what I mean, but I'm really not comfortable with that language. And and coming together to decide on what language is going to be most comfortable for that person, right? Language has so much power, especially language around genitals, which is so much kind of stigma and power. And there's so much, so many different words that we use to refer to. It's really important to kind of make sure we're all on the same page and, and the language that's being used is affirming. Right. It's that's very helpful because it'll help you understand your own body. It will help you then as a patient, open up to your doctor. If your doctor is navigating your own language and is helping you be comfortable, then I'm comfortable enough to say oh, this part of my bits uh, to go back to the same reference. This is the part of my bits that hurt and I want to find a fit for it. And it's not the, the medical language, but now I was able to open up to the doctor and say, like, even pointing to a diagram or pointing to myself and go through that. And maybe eventually the patient will get comfortable with some language or maybe not. But the doctor understanding and navigating that, it's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, how important this is you know, and talking about adults' healthcare, but so important for, for youth, for kids who might be referring to their genitals as, as a name that, you know, isn't well known to other people and the importance of them, even if they want to call it that, understanding what it actually is, because that can be really preventative in, in sexual violence and really important also for a child who's trying to express to an adult that they have experienced sexual violence, right? Um, so right. important for them to understand the name of their body parts um, because if they say, you know, so-and-so touched my cookie and they're talking about their vulva, right? That's, somebody might not understand if they don't understand what cookie means, right? Right. There's a lot of importance in, in knowing the medically accurate language but also then being able to decide with your provider on something that's most comfortable is, is great. And I think also in doing that and talking about it in a very normalized way, oh, you're, you're saying this, is this what you mean? Oh, okay, great, let's move on. No right. big deal, right? It doesn't have to be a big deal. And I think that's so validating too, just in that moment. And that can help somebody to feel more comfortable, even if they're not comfortable with the words, hopefully to feel more comfortable in their body. Yeah, and that, that is so important. Like you said, if, if you don't understand what the, the person is telling you, especially kids, someone touched my cookie. Well, well, what does that mean? And what does that mean for you? And what's, do we need to take action kind of thing? And if you understand what the kid is trying to tell you, then you are in a better position to take the appropriate action that needs to be taken. So that that is so important. Mm -hmm. And talking, you mentioned another example that just came to mind, uh, talking about language, instead of saying like, 
can you do this for me? Uh, one of the things that uh, my TCP in the phrases uh, movement is, if this movement is, a, is accessible for you, can you do it? And it's like, can you touch your toes? She starts always with, if this is accessible for you, can you touch your toes or go as far as you can? Mm-hmm. And that just gives you that opportunity to say, oh, no, I can't because this hurts. Or if it's something graver that is not just touching your toes, I, I can't do that because it triggers a memory of trauma. And you have that space to say why or just talk about it in a, in a different way. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's such a great example. I appreciate you sharing that example, Vima, because that's such a like people think like, oh, how do I incorporate consent to this? That's exactly how you do it. That's exactly how you do it. If you can or can I, if, you know, if the doctor is going to touch you in some way or something, can I do this? Or, you know, um, if you can or if this is comfortable or if this is accessible to you, that's beautiful language. It's so, so great. Right. And that's it's it's that easy really to incorporate consent and to make the patient feel like they are actually the ones in control there because mm-hmm. that's what got them there. Cause they, their health is important to them. Right. So they're there getting a checkup or getting whatever care they need. Right. It's in, and by saying there's already a power dynamic between doctor and patient. Right. And so by saying, can you do this for me? Right. You're enforcing that power dynamic. Like it's, it's all for you, right. You're the one doing the test. You're the ones with all the knowledge. You're, you know, you're the one in control. We need to make it more even so that patients feel like they're actually in control or at least on the same, the same level um, as yeah. a writer. Yeah. They're on the same wavelength and, and it gives, it gives the patient the opportunity of having a, a deeper conversation when it needs to happen. Sometimes like the first time that my doctor said those words to me, I was like, oh yeah, you." And I didn't think about it. Like, oh, you want me to bend over to see if I can bend over at my spine? Sure, done. But as I, as the years progress, I began to understand like that language was not made for me because I didn't even think twice about it. But it was made for those folks that needed that extra step or that extra language to open up and talk about a very difficult topic on on surrounding whatever uh, action the doctor is doing. So um, we're almost at the end of the podcast, but I just wanted to leave the, the space open for you. If there's anything else you'd like to tell our audience in terms of the work that you do before we jump into promotions. Um, I think, I think we covered a lot of it. Um, you know, I, again, I, I think I could, I could talk about this for days, probably there's so <laughs> much to cover as we started, you know, we've started to make so many of these little connections and there's so much, um, to connect to it, but I think, you know, maybe a, a good place to end is so often people feel as if their bodies or things that are happening to their bodies are not normal, um, and some things aren't right, but if it is, if you can validate that for somebody, validating the fact that you're feeling that way is completely normal. Or yeah, that's you know, it it's really common that that could happen. You know, is so such a valuable language that really helps to reduce shame, right? Because there's something about, especially connected to sexuality, that if you're not normal, whatever the heck that means, right? That something's wrong right. with your sexuality, and that produces shame, right? So saying this is normal or uncommon and typical or what have you, right? And then following up with with that language, um, you know, and, and perhaps if, if it's a problem, if it's somebody is experiencing something that's an issue for them, right? Pain, unwanted pain or something like this, giving resources to follow. But even if you don't know the resources, it's enough to say, that's really common. Let's, let's get you connected with the right people. Or that's really common. You know, if you're feeling distressed about it, I might recommend X, Y, and Z or, you know, whatever it might be. But there's so, so much to just validate somebody, right? That reduces shame in so many ways. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. It, it's, uh, that function is a, a normal, and I use that in quotations, bodily function. That's what it's supposed to do sometimes. It's why the, the the patient needs to hear. Like, yes, your your 
knee is supposed to do that to make a, a really random um, body part. Your knee is supposed to bend that way. It's supposed to have that fold there. You are okay in that area. And sometimes the patient just needs to hear that, that, oh, this is not, this is not a knee that should be shamed about. It's one that is really okay for my body. So Chelsea, uh, we're at the end of the podcast and thank you so much for coming. Um, before we go, I just want to give you the space to promote any work that you have upcoming and also for our folks to find you on social media or a newsletter, or whatever you have um, out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Vima. Um, so the the first thing that I have coming up, so this is kind of usually a slower time for me um, outside of the academic year, uh, but I do, um, I will be uh, speaking at the conference on youth sexual health education, uh, CYSHI, a conference that's hosted um, in Rhode Island every year. Typically we all get to get together at Rhode Island College, um, but it will be virtual this year. Um, so you can check online for some additional details on how to register for that conference if you are interested. Uh, I think it's really great not only for um, people who work with youth, but people who generally wanna learn more about sex education and, and how youth are interacting with that. Um, it's really, really important. So uh, that's coming up on May 21st. Um, so that's Friday. And then uh, to follow me and kind of keep up with what I'm doing, um, uh, the social media that I love the most is Instagram. Um, and so you can follow me at Chayfed. Um, so that's C-H-E-Y-F-E-D. Um, and that and that's me. And I've, um, I post here and there about sex education stuff, but any other events and stuff that are coming up for me, that's the best way to kind of keep up with what I've got going on. Um, I will say there, you know, I might be taking a little bit of a step back because I actually am um, working to forward my career um, and going back to school um, with the hopes of being a sex therapist. So being able to provide, um, be a provider myself and do a little bit more of this work um, with folks and not just teaching other folks how to do it. Um, so that's, that's going to be coming up for me. So it might be, you know, a little, little busy for the next two years with my schooling. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, yeah, keep up with me on, on Instagram. And that's where you can see where my workshops will be and, and things like this. Awesome. Um, and congratulations on, on doing um, the sex therapy education. That's really cool. Um, that's on my bucket list that I'll get to at some point, but down the road. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming to Virgin Territory with us. I, it was a pleasure talking to you and I, I hope to see you around. Yeah. Thanks so much, Vima. It's truly been a pleasure. You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org.